Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. We've studied from the first chapter thus far in our Wednesday night and Sunday uh, evening services. And so we'll pick up with chapter 9. This is where we happen to be. Now, in this chapter, we have a call to praise and thank God for what He had done. Uh, Israel had that call, and then I'm sure we can transfer it to ourselves and see ourselves as a church and as individuals uh, that really have a lot of history and what God has done for us that we're called also to be thankful. So we'll read it verse by verse and give you some titles and and uh, exhortation as we go along. Let's look in chapter one of I mean verse one of chapter nine. Now in the twentieth and fourth day of this month the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from the uh, from all the strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now then, this was a solemn day of fasting and confession. And they separated themselves from the strangers. By the way, it got so terrible that the children of Israel were marrying strange wives and of the foreign nations. And in this, this case, the idolatrous aspect of it was so great that God said, you cannot continue to do this. In fact, He warned them against it uh, to, at the beginning and uh, they had uh, more married more strange wives. By this time it had increased. If you look back in the book of Ezra, chapter 10 and verse 3, we'll read what it says. Let's read verse 2 and 3. In verse, the middle of verse 2 it says, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So they were called upon to separate themselves. And someone might say, well, that's very cruel. They had married these uh, women of these other nations. But remember that God said that they were idolatrous nations, and God did not want His people to be led further and further and further, step by step and little by little, into idolatry. And you know, we don't need to question God anyway. If He says it's wrong, it's wrong. And uh, so they were separating themselves from these strangers in that sense of the word. It doesn't mean that God does not love all nations and all people, but it does mean that when there's idolatrous uh, uh associations that God is against that. In fact, if you read over in the New Testament, the Bible says that uh, there needs to be separation. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord of hosts, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And so there's Second Corinthians chapter 6, and that's where you'll find it. Beginning with verse 13, or verse 14, it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. God says that even in the New Testament. And he says, uh, For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols, and that's 
also what it was touching upon. For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. So we're taught the same principle in the New Testament, and the same practice. Uh, as far as separation from idolatry and from sinful relationships. And that's a whole other sermon. But anyway, back in our text, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, we find that there was a solemn fasting and there was confession of their sins. And then in verse 3, I want you to notice, And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day, and another fourth part of the day they confessed. Another fourth part they confessed. And worship the Lord their God. So a quarter of the day they read in the law. And then this law. What does the law of God when you read it lead you to? It leads you to confession. Because the law of God, the word of God is like a mirror. We see ourselves and we see our sins and shortcomings. Our faults and our failures. James says that we look into that perfect law of liberty. And if we look into that perfect law of liberty. We do not want to forget what matter of man we are. Remember, James uses this, and he says that we. But it's like a man beholding his natural face in the glass, and straightway he goes and forgets what manner of man he is. Instead of doing something about it, when you and I look in the mirror and we see a smudge on our face or whatever attention needs to be given, and we go our way and forget all about it, we say stay in the same condition. If we look into God's holy word and we see ourselves and what we are and the changes we need to make. And we go our way. What happens? We disregard God's word. We just forget uh, that he has revealed to us and shown us some of our sins and shortcomings. So one fourth part of the day they read in the word of God, the law of the Lord. And one fourth part uh, they confessed and they worshiped the Lord. In verse four, it says, Then stood up up, up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua, and Benaiah, and Cadmiel, and Shebaniah, Benaiah, Sherebiah, Benaiah, and Shenaiah, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, and Cadmiel, Benaiah, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, and Shebaniah, and Pethiah, said, Stand up, now here's the command, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which exalted, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So in verse 5, we have a call to thank God and to bless God. And the reasons of this blessing and thanking God begin to be shown us from verses 6 on through the rest of the chapter. It tells us why. It tells them why, and it also tells us why. Now, first of all, in verse 6, bless him because he is the God of creation. Look at verse 6. It says, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Boy, that's a mouthful to bless God for, isn't it? That he is the creator of all things in the heavens, that he is the creator of all things in the earth, that he's the one that preserves them all, he holds them all together, and all the host of heaven worships him. Well, if the host of heaven worships him, what about the host of earth? Because the host of earth is made as well. So he's called upon, we're called upon, 
to worship God and to bless God, verse, last part of verse 5, because in verse 6, He is the God of creation. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His, his handiwork. If you turn to Psalm uh, 19, I believe it is, it says, Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth, through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So, their line, what does he mean? The handiwork of God, their line and their voice reaches to the ends of the earth. Nature itself, creation itself, teaches us that there is a God. That's what the psalmist was saying. But then the Word of God tells us more about Him being God, and more of what kind of God He is. He's the God of all revelation that we have. Here's the revelation of God to man. You know, God has not revealed anything to me but what is written here. And He has not really... It's all based on this. You say, well, I have certain spiritual aspirations, inclinations, but it all finds its stem and it, or its root in the Word of God. It all comes back to some promise God made to us and something He spoke to us to give us uh, what we have in a spiritual uh, relationship. So... Here we see that they worship Him and they are to bless Him because of creation. Now verses 7 and 8, we see that they blessed Him because He was the God of all grace. I want you to notice. Thou art the Lord, the God, thou art the Lord, the God who did choose Abraham. He chose Abraham and brought us him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave us him the name of Abraham and found us his heart faithful before thee and made us a covenant with him. To give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. What does he do? I want you to look at these words. 7 and 8. He chose, he brought him forth, he gave him. He found, verse 8, he found his heart faithful, made, him a, made a covenant. In verse 8, the God of all grace. God chose us. He brought out, brought us out of the land of idolatry. Remember when he brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he brought him out of idolatry. He brought him out of the place that he once worshipped idols. And he told Abraham, and he says, you get out of this country and you go to a land that I will show you. And it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he left it all and he did not know where he was going. And yet what happened? He obeyed God in spite of that. And he listened to God. And he left that land of idolatry. In verses, verse 9 we see, The God who answers prayer and did, and did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard us their cry and uh, by the Red Sea. He saw the affliction of Israel later on as they were in bondage in Egypt. And he heard their cry. And he heard their cry by the Red Sea. He really heard their cry when they were in affliction before He brought them through the Red Sea. There's a whole story about God hearing their cry. Beginning with Exodus chapter 2, when uh, 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 chapter 1, when they were in great affliction, and then chapter 2 when Moses was born and God raised up a deliverer for them. And later on, when they came to the Red Sea and they were worrying about uh, what they were going to do with the Egyptian army behind them and uh, mountains on either side, and the sea before them. And they cried to God. And Moses got down on his face and cried to God and says, What am I going to do with this great multitude of people you brought out of, the, of Egypt and we're faced with this Red Sea? 
And God said, Moses, arise and stand upon your feet. And he says, it's not time to cry. It's time to go on. I've already heard your cry. It's time now to cross that sea. Stand forth and take your rod and smite the sea. And the waters are going to part. And you're going to go forth across the sea dry shod. And that's exactly what happened. So he heard their cry. He's the God who answers prayer. He sees the afflictions of his people in in the Egypt of this world. You say, well, he saw the affliction of Israel in their Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. Does he see your afflictions in this world? The same way. He sees mine and yours. We're in a world too. And we're in a wilderness. He heard their cry. His ear never became heavy through weariness. Some people think God is wearied of hearing our cry, but He's not. He's always day and night. He's awake. He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Aren't you glad that we're told to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need? And it can be day or night. A lot of times in the middle of the night we'll pray to God in the midst of our troubles. In the evening, the afternoon, the morning, whenever it is. And then... We know He is the reward of them that diligently seek Him. He hears our uh, prayer and cry for our needs. And we had part of it this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that, listen, that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Sometimes we miss that too. He is. He is God, but He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And here He's the God who answers prayer. Jeremiah 33 verse 3 says, Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And we just need to call. Now verses 10 through 12, we have the God of deliverance. By the way, all these things, the God of creation, the God of grace, and the God of... Uh, who answers prayer and the God of deliverance are reason after reason why we should bless the Lord back in verse 5. Look at the last part of verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever and blessed be thy glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then in verse 6 he tells us he's the God of creation. Verse 7 and 8 he's the God of grace. Verse uh, uh 9, he tells us he's the God who hears our cry in verse 10 and 11. In 10 through 12, he's the God of deliverance. That's, that's a lot of reasons to be thanking God, isn't it? Blessing God. So let's look at verse 10 through 12 and see the God of deliverance. Notice in verse 10, And show its signs and wonders upon Pharaoh. He showed signs and wonders. Upon Pharaoh and on all his servants, and on all the people of his land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land, and their persecutors thou threwest into the depths, that the pers- or their persecutors were also their pursuers. It says persecutors, and they were their persecutors. And as they pursued after... Israel, God uh, threw them into the depths as a stone into mighty waters, the God of deliverance. He delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. He sent them from their, uh, he saved them from their strong enemy and led them forth by a new way. In every movement, there was his guidance. If you look in verse 12, the pillar of fire and pillar of cloud guided them. Verse 12, moreover, thou ledest them in, in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. God gave them a miraculous guiding light in the wilderness. 
And that miraculous guiding light was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, God has a way of guiding His people, doesn't He? And He guided them in such a way that this pillar of cloud uh, kept them from a... You know, there's another scripture that says, The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. So it protected them day and night. It led them and guided them day and night. And... God's Word is our light and our guide throughout our wilderness journey. His Word guides us day and night. And we're in a wilderness journey. Uh, The psalmist said, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's our spiritual guide. And if we'll follow the guidance of God's Word, the light of God's Word, we'll be led in the right direction. You know, that encourages us. And makes it necessary for us to study God's Word to know how to be guided. The psalmist said in another place, Guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me unto glory. And we need to be guided with God's counsel. This pillar of cloud and pillar of fire by day and by night also protected them from the enemy. If you look back in the book of Exodus, chapter I'll read two passages of Scripture. In 13, verse 21, and in 14, verse 19. They're right together, close together. 13, 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day, He went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. I want you to notice the next verse. He took not away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. He did not take it away. I like that. He does not take away His guidance from us. It's still there. Just as truly and surely as that pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night was there for Israel, His Word is ever there for you and I. It's always there. Thy Word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. Now in chapter 14 of Exodus, verse 19 and 20, I want you to notice this. And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them, and the pillar of, of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was cloud. It was a cloud in darkness to them, that is to the Egyptians, but it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all the night. This same guiding cloud by day and by night when the enemy approached and was attacking Israel, and the Egyptians were right behind them, this pillar of cloud and fire went from before them to behind them and separated them from the camp of the Egyptians so that they could not approach and they could not attack God's people. I like that too, don't you? God has a way of protecting His own from the onslaughts of the enemy. And you know God has a way of protecting you and I from the onslaughts of Satan and all of his uh, wiles and all of his uh, plans and all of his snares and traps. And I'm thankful for that. Because we need divine protection. The Bible says, Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, listen, seeking whom he may devour. That's not the end of it. The next verse says, you know what it says? Someone says, I know that scripture about your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The next verse says, whom resist steadfast in the faith. You resist him. How? Steadfast in the faith. And then it says, something about your brethren have also faced these same difficulties, knowing that your brethren have also 
this same affliction and the same uh, trial of Satan. I think you'll find that First Peter chapter uh, five, probably verse five, six, seven, long in there. Okay, let's look at this. Now, back in our text in the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 9 and verse uh, 12. Moreover, thou leddest them in the day by, by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go. Now, verse 13 tells us that he is the God of revelation. What have we found first? He's the God of creation. He's the God of grace. He's the God who answers prayer. He's the God of deliverance. And now he's the God of revelation. Verse 13. Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven. See, he revealed. And gavest them right judgments, and true laws, and madest, I want you to notice this, uh, true laws, good statutes and commandments, and madest known unto unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandments, thou uh, commandest them precepts, statutes, laws, by the hand of Moses thy servant. I want you to notice words here. I like to mark words. First of all, I circle the word thou. Thou. And then camest down. Circle spakest. He spake and gave. Gavest. And then verse 14. Madest known. So you see, it's God's revelation. No man by the mere process of searching can find out God as He has revealed Himself in His Word and through Christ. No man can by searching. They just... You cannot go through a process of searching. If you're out here without the Word of God, you're like a ship without a sail. You just cannot search and find out. You just are you. You're like a better illustration would be you like a ship without a compass, wouldn't it? So you cannot find out God really and truly apart from His Word. Psalm 138 verse 2 says that thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Because it is by his word that he tells us of himself. And so he tells them here that he made himself known. He's the God of revelation. Verse 15, he's the God who supplies all of our need. Verse 15, and gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger. And brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hadst sworn to give them. What did he do? He gave them bread. He brought them, brought forth water. And he promised them that they'd go in and possess the land. And he had promised this so much that he had sworn to give this land to them. You know, God, when he makes a promise, he's going to stand behind it all the way. Men make promises. That they do not keep. You talk about promise keeper. God's the promise keeper. Not you and I, by the way. And I won't get into that anymore. I'll just leave it there. But verse 16, I want you to notice verses 16 through 18. uh, He's the God of long-suffering and mercy. But let's continue to deal with the fact that God supplies all of our needs. Verse 15. A provision that covered their present and future needs. He not only covered their present needs, but He promised to take care of them in the future. And our hunger, yours and mine, can only be satisfied. Our spiritual hunger can only be satisfied with the bread from heaven. The Bible says, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And our spiritual hunger will never be satisfied apart from that bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Any man that eateth of this bread, whosoever eateth of this bread shall live forever. And how do you eat of that bread? How do you eat of Christ, the bread of life? By faith. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
Whosoever believeth in me hath everlasting life. So that's the way you eat of that bread. And that's all in John chapter 6. It shows us very distinctly that the process or the way, the channel through which and uh, the way that we eat of this bread is by faith in Christ. And so if we put our faith in the Lord and believe in Him and trust in Him, we're able to feed upon Him as the bread of life. And our hunger can only be satisfied with this kind of bread. And the thirst can only be satisfied with the water of life, of that smitten rock. You know, they... It says, look at this verse again. Verse 15, You gave them bread and you brought forth water from them out of the rock for their thirst. Now, God did bring forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, but not until what? That rock was smitten. The smiting of that rock is symbolical of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's symbolical of the fact that except through the death of Christ on the cross and through what He did for us on the cross, We could not have the water of life. They could not drink of that uh, water, of that rock, until it was smitten. Not Hebrews, but 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 and 2 says, They drank of that smitten rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. They drank of that rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. In Exodus, we're told that it was smitten, and it gave forth the water. By the way, a little extra on that smitten rock. Later on, when the children of Israel were at a place with no water again and God told Moses to go and to speak to that rock and it would give forth its water and Moses was angry at the children of Israel because they were so provoking him to anger and making so many demands upon him that Moses went forth and he smote that rock again and God said for this you will not enter the promised land what does this teach us that first of all, Christ had to be smitten in order to produce the water of life for us and salvation for us and all things thereunto. But now, after He has been smitten on the cross, He died for our sins once. He's ascended to the right hand of God. And now, what is He to be smitten again? Spoken to. Come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He once died for our sins and that was all is necessary. And so now we only speak to Him. And Moses, because of his uh, position there for the children of Israel, and even though they drove him to it, he was responsible for his actions in smiting the rock. He let let his emotions, he let his temper get the best of it. That teaches you and I a lesson. You say, well, those people provoked me to do so and so. Nevertheless, you did it, not them. Right? And sometimes we blame others For what happens when we lose our cool, we'll use this modern language, when we become angry, we say, well, they provoked me to do this. Well, that may be true. And they provoked Moses. But Moses still was responsible for his actions. And by the way, as deacons, as trustees, and especially as a pastor, we cannot let other folks provoke us to do the wrong thing and cause us to be angry and do the wrong thing. We must keep close to God and do the right thing. And it takes a lot of stamina and it takes a lot of dedication in the midst of trials to say, God, help me now to do the right thing. I I, I have an idea that this was a pretty great trial for Moses, don't you? I have an idea it was pretty hard for him to deal with all that multitude, uh, that church in the wilderness. 
especially their hearts were turned back to Egypt. They were blaming him for every affliction or every problem along the way, uh, roundabout way. They were blaming God for it all. So he had quite a thing to, to deal with there. So you and I need to be mindful that we're responsible for our actions regardless of what other people do. And sometimes we have a great battle in trying to do the right thing under those circumstances. Now then, we said that verse uh, 15 shows us that we need to trust God for our supplies, our needs, and that He takes care of those. But now let's read verses 16 through 18. But they, our fathers, and our fathers, look, what did they do in response to this? It's amazing of the God of long-suffering and mercy in spite of the way they dealt with God, or they, they responded. So read down verses 16 through 18. It says, But they and our fathers dealt proudly. Look at that word, dealt proudly. And hardened their necks, and hearkened not to thy commandments, and refused... I mean, they just didn't say, well, we don't know what he's talking about. They refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders. Are we mindful of the blessings of God? They were, mind, were not even mindful of his wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. They appointed a captain, says, take us back to Egypt. We want to return to bondage. I mean, talk about an example of what we should not follow. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it tells us all these things, listen carefully, were written for our examples so that we would not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And there fell so many there in the wilderness. And uh, it's telling us there in 1 Corinthians 10 of the example after example. And you read it and you'll study it. It all ties in with this. Of their disobedience to God. It's amazing what God's people will do in rebellion. And yet how merciful and gracious God is in all, all of this. Let's continue to read and we'll find it. What he did was absolute God, long-suffering, and mercy. So, read again. Let's read again verse 17. They refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders, that thou didst among them harden their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou, but thou, look at that word. You ought to circle that. But thou art a God ready to pardon. But thou, in spite of all this, art a God ready to pardon. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And look, and forsook us them not. He still didn't forsake them. Talk about grace. And talk about mercy to the undeserving. After all of this, they said, we want a, us a captain. We're going to not listen to your word. We're going to rebel against it. And we want to return back to Egypt. And in spite of all this, what happened? God's a God of mercy and grace. And he did not forsake them. In verse 18. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf. Remember, they made them a molten calf. And said, This is thy God that brought us thee up out of Egypt and has wrought great provocations. And had wrought great provocations. Yet thou, this is another word, yet thou, in thy manifold mercies, forsookest them not in the wilderness. He still didn't forsake. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them. In the way, neither the pillar of fire by the night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also, look at this, Thou gavest also Thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not Thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. 
in spite of all these things, God was still faithful to them and still took care of them. Well, there's so much more in this chapter. I don't believe we're going to finish it. So let's uh, we'll stop with that. In verse 21, we'll pick it up in our next lesson. That'll be Wednesday night. We'll pick up with verse 21 of the ninth chapter and study that. And if we get time, we'll get into the tenth chapter because the tenth has a little different uh, uh, way of dealing with it because of the many names that are recorded and there are certain highlights that we'll point out in the tenth chapter. So we thank you for your patience and your kind attention. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer.